Um, we're going to be in Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 11. Let me, actually, for context, I'm going to read 1 through 11, but the focal passage will be verses 6 through 11. Let me encourage you to turn there in a Bible, uh, get ready to kind of read and study from that. But this, this, we're carrying on in our series. Um, two weeks ago, Ricky preached from Psalm 67, and he opened us up into this section of our series. So Alpha and Omega, God from beginning to end. It's been a biblical study starting from God's work from the beginning all the way back at the let there be light going all the way now till we'll end up in Revelation. Um, But as we've gone through that, we've looked at different sections or segments. We've focused on different components of the the work of God. So God created, God covenanted, God commanded, and that's where we we left off uh, when I left for Africa. And then now we're in God commissions. And, And Ricky led us into that from Psalm 67, and he demonstrated that God commissioned his people for worship that leads others to see his glory and worship. So to a people who worship, worshiping so publicly and pronounced in, in such a way that, that it leads to further worship. Then last week, Pastor Bob, speaking from Isaiah, teaching from Isaiah 6 and showing us Isaiah's call. It's a holy call because it's a holy God and it's a holy purpose that he's calling us to. It's his work in this world. It's his, it's, it's his commissioning. It's his sending that uh, we've been given as his people. Uh, and this week we're going to continue in that as we look at Acts 1 through 6. Now before we jump into that, I just want to make a quick note that though we're not focusing on the law, on God commands, we are still talking about what God has called us to, commanded us to. This is still what God's people are to be about doing. This is, this is still us trying to figure out how to live in light of God, being God at all times, in all places, and in all circumstances, among all people. Uh, this is us trying to determine to live that way, live in light of what he's done. And so, so there's a way in which we're still being called to be obedient to this. In fact, I would suggest... Now, I think the Bible makes clear. Let me just not, this is not my opinion. I think the Bible makes this clear. If you will not follow God's mission for the church, you cannot live in obedience to God in any other aspect or area of your life. Let that sit for just a minute. Because we'd all just sing a bunch of songs, right? And we'd say we worshiped. We all just thought on God and the goodness and greatness of God. But even if you're obedient in that aspect of your life, but you never proclaim the name of Christ, you are still in disobedience. We have not moved on from what we are to do as God's people in this world. As we talk about this commission, it is as much a thing we are to be obedient to as God's people, as his commands, because it is one of his commands. So I'm not trying to be, just trying to put this in perspective, the weightiness of it. I don't think that we can suggest that we love God with all our being, that we love neighbor as ourself if we are not seeking to make disciples of all nations. See what I'm saying? We can pretend. We can do a lot of noble things. But if we are not seeking to make disciples, let's put this in the context of family. I'm looking out and seeing lots of kids. Put this in the context of family. Has a father loved his children if he's not led them to know Jesus? Oh, he provided a home. He made sure they had something to eat. He, but they die and go to hell never knowing Jesus. Has a mother 
loved her children if she has not represented her Savior to them? Can we say we're a good friend if we're friends with lost people, but we never speak of Jesus? Can we say we're good citizens if we vote exactly as we think is the best way to vote? And then probably as I look around the room, that's going to be different for different people. But we never proclaim the name of Christ. This is, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not trying to be dramatic. But this is weighty stuff. This is important stuff. It's important things. So we need to study it. We need to pay attention to it. We need to consider it. And so we are. Acts 1, 6 through 11. Let's read it. Actually, I'm going to begin, like I said, in verse 1 for context, because I'm going to need to refer back to that in just a minute. I want you to hear it in its context. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself to them, alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Let's pray. Father, the stage is set. We know that this is weighty stuff. These things that we are talking about today are the very reasons Jesus came to die and rise, that he might fulfill the mission that you've been working from the beginning of time. I pray, Father, that we wouldn't seek to be a people who take on more than you've called us to, but that we would not be a people who deny or reject or ignore the responsibility you've given us. That we'd be a people who, well, bear witness to who you are, to what you've done, and that seek to see Jesus exalted. Help us today, I pray, as we study these words. Teach us, transform us, and then guide us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Have you ever entered, you like left a room, you, you enter a room, you forgot why you went in there? It happens all the time, right? As we get older, it happens more and more. Maybe some of you are even thinking, yeah, that happened to me just this morning. I walked in this room, it's like, why am I here? I hope you know why you're in this room, okay? But have you ever gotten distracted in the middle of doing one thing? And we live in a day and age, everything's distracting. Your phone goes off, ding, you got to take care of this thing. And then you forget what you were doing, you don't get back to it, you get distracted, and now you're doing the thing that distracted you instead of the thing that you started to do? Or have you ever prioritized the wrong things? Rearranged your priorities in your life because, well, this one I appreciate, this one I like, 
This one is fun to me. I want to do this, even though this is more important. Procrastinators unite, right? Like we'll put it off to the last minute because something else seems more fun. Have you ever done that? You ever thought about it? You ever experienced it? It's not just individuals who do this. Organizations do it. They enter a new season and, and, and they kind of forget what they were originally doing. Organizations get distracted and, and can prioritize lesser things over more important things. When, when they do it, when organizations do it, when we do it, when people do it, we call it forgetfulness, easily distracted, you know, ADHD or uh, procrastinators. But when organizations do it, we call it mission drift. Now, I don't know why it's different for an organization. Really, realistically, it's the same for everybody. We get distracted. We quit doing the thing we're supposed to be doing. We start prioritizing the things that are less important. For, but it's mission drift. And when the church does it, when God's people drift from their mission, we're, we're drifting away from the very reason Jesus came and the very mission he assigned to us. When an organization does this, let's say it's a corporation, let's say it's our government, let's say whatever, it, it's something that they've taken on themselves. Like a, a business starts for a purpose. I can't help out but seeing Caleb out of the field of my view. He started a business to put in insulation. What if he gets distracted and decides to start framing? Like, that's not what you started to do. That's not what your business is. Your, your business is called Springfield Insulation. And you're framing? Like what, what's up with that? Right? That's something he took on himself. But this is a mission that's been assigned to us. And that's why I started the way I did. We don't get an option to define our own mission. We don't get an option to determine what we are going to do as God's people in this world. We don't have the authority, nor the right, nor the place to be a people who determine what our lives are meant to be. In the seeking of purpose in this world in which we live, the place we're called to look as God's people is to our Savior, Jesus Christ. He said it. He made it clear. There is no argument. There is no, oh, but wait, I got a, good, I got a great idea. No, he has made it clear. So what is that mission? The point of the sermon, the point I'm going to build from this text, the point we're going to look at the rest of the way through this God's mission for his church in this world is to bear witness by his power to the king and his kingdom wherever people are. God's mission for his church in this world is to bear witness by his power to the king and his kingdom wherever people are. Now this obviously, I, I said, I, I built this point from this text. If we're studying any of the commissioning passages. There's actually five of them, one in each of the gospels and now one in the book of Acts. We, we, we could have said and used slightly different language and meant the same thing. If we were doing it from Matthew 28, 18 through 20, I could, have, I could have used one that I've used before, that we are called to make disciples, mature disciples, and mobilize disciples to the glory of God to the end of the age. I could have done that. We could have looked at John's commissioning passage where Jesus prays, Hey, Father, I'm sending them as you sent me. And then he turns to his disciples and he breathes on them, gives them the Spirit and says, I've sent you as you've sent me, as I've been sent. We could say something to the, to, to the effect is that we are called to live sent as Jesus lived sent. Now each of these, each of these have, have, have a slightly different language, but they all end in the same place. But the reason I wanted to study this one is because the four that come at the end of the Gospels come at the end of the Gospels. 
We don't get to see what comes next. The one that comes at the beginning of the book of Acts, we get to see what happens. We get to see it un, un, unfold in front of us. And so we'll be, be this week in the book of Acts and next week in the book of Acts as we, as we look at this. And five times the Spirit inspires these gospel writers to record Jesus' words, commissioning his people to the work that they've called, been called to, that Jesus is leaving them to do. Each uses slightly different language, but they all essentially mean and point us to the same thing. God's mission for his church in this world is to bear witness by his power to the king and his kingdom, wherever people are. Now let's look at it. The passage opens, right? So, so here we are, passage opens, oh Theophilus. So, so Luke addresses the letter, he, he, he's letting Theophilus know, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you kind of a synopsis of what my last book was about, the gospel of Luke. And so this is like, you know, when you're watching a television show and they give you a recap of last week's episode, He's saying, hey, I'm going to give you a recap of my last book before I jump into what's to come. And so, so here's what happens. He presents this as Jesus has, has, has died, he's risen, and, and he has spent 40 days with his followers, and he's been teaching them and talking to them. And what's he teaching them about? The kingdom of God. And while he's with them, he promises again. This is not the first time he's promised it. But while he's with them, just before he ascends into heaven, he tells them, I'm going to send the Spirit. You're to go and wait to get the Spirit. You go and, and sit there until it comes. I'm going to baptize you not many days from now in the Holy Spirit. And this is the, this is the topic of conversation, the two over, overarching views of what he's talking to them and teaching them in his 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension. So then we come to verse 6. When they come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Some, some people want to give the apostles a hard time immediately about this. Why in the world would they go to this? Why would they? Because that's what Jesus was teaching them. The kingdom, the coming kingdom was central to Jesus' ministry, not just after his death and resurrection, but all the way through his ministry. We'll look at that just a little bit today. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven was a central focus. And so it's completely understandable that they come to this place now and, and, and they're thinking, oh man, Jesus has been teaching us about this. He's been preparing it for us. Is now the time. So he, he does correct them. And that's why a lot of people will immediately move to a place where they're going to give the apostles a hard time. That, that, the question is an honest question. The question is a, is, is, a, is, is a direct result of what Jesus has been doing. The, but the question betrays that they don't really understand what their role is to be and what God's role is. It betrays the fact that they, that they misunderstand what Jesus is talking about when he speaks of the kingdom. So they had to be corrected. They had to be gently rebuked and shown the right path. But it wasn't a bad question. They had, they had timing on their mind. They, had, they, had, they were thinking about, hey, I, we're trying to define this right now. They had a misunderstanding of the kingdom in their mind. So Jesus corrects them. I said this in our church history class that was in the equip hour and I've man I, Ecclesiastes I, through these last six or eight months has been on my mind I'm thinking about it a lot I'm reading from it considering it again and uh, it's just I, it's just a, it's been heavy in my thoughts and 
especially over times and seasons, and we're all trying to assign a position in history of what season we're in or what we're experiencing. And we want to be a people who, who know when we're entering in a season and when we're going to get out of that season. We want to know whether we're building up or tearing down. We want to define the, the, the season we're in. And Solomon corrects us and says that's not ours to do, but to trust God in the middle of it. To recognize that there's a season for, for planting, a season for harvesting, a, plant, a, a season for building up, a, a, a season for tearing down, a season for living, a season for dying. There's a season for everything under the sun. And God uses all of those seasons to make things beautiful in their time. So the best thing we can do is sit down and enjoy the gifts God has given us. Instead of trying to figure out his times and seasons that he's ruling over at all times figure out how to be his people in the midst of whatever season we, we, we find ourselves. Well, that's exactly what is happening here. Is this the season? Is this the time? Is this when you're going to do this thing? We know it's coming. You've told us it's coming. Is this the time? No, no, no. It's not for you to know that. It says, uh, Pastor Bob says it often uh, in conversation with me at least. Maybe I don't know if he says it to you. I would assume he does. That's God's stuff. Like that, he's the one that does that. He's the one that knows that. He's the one that determines that. But that's not the only time we see them corrected in this passage. So Jesus teaches them. He commissions them. He challenges them to see their role, to see their purpose. And then he ascends. And what do they do? I don't know how long they stood there. Were you wondering how long am I going to stay? Like, did you ever just have a stroke? I, I, I just picture them, you know, what? And then these two men appear. Why are you looking in the sky? Didn't Jesus just tell you what you're to be doing? Didn't you just get your marching orders? Didn't you just hear what he had to say? Didn't, did you, is there something you didn't understand? He's coming back. What are you supposed to be doing? Standing looking in the sky? No, waiting for the coming Holy Spirit so that you can be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Why are you standing here on this hilltop looking in the sky? They, obviously, though, if they need correction, who do you think needs correction? Me? You? Are we above this? Like, we, we don't ever get distracted? We don't ever forget what we're supposed to be about. We don't ever prioritize the wrong things or get our priorities out of whack. We, we don't need to be reminded that God's mission for his church in this world is to bear witness by his power to the, to, the, to the king and his kingdom wherever people are. Absolutely, we need to be reminded of that. Absolutely, we need to be reminded of that. Because we give ourselves to all kinds of noble tasks and not once do we get busy about committing ourselves to bearing witness to Christ and his kingdom. It's an unfortunate reality that people in the, people, the, oh man, I want to say this carefully. I often know more about Christians in the American church. I often know more about their political positions, about their thoughts about how children should be raised, about their positions on societal problems, about all that's wrong in the world, more than I know about what they think about Jesus. 
there was a season in our church, so we're not a, we're not a, a teetotaling church. We're not a church that teaches it's a sin to drink alcohol. Uh, we would encourage moderation. But there was a season in our church that I knew more about what people were drinking for cocktails than how Jesus was working in their life. That is a sad statement on a church. God's mission for his church in this world is not talk about your alcoholic drinks because you can lean into your freedom. Not that we can't have those conversations. But if that's all we're talking about, we might have gotten things out of whack. If all we're talking about is what's wrong in the world, and man, I wish they'd just be more like us, tired of living in this place that's so sinful, and not about how we're making inroads by proclaiming Christ and him crucified and resurrected and coming as a king in his kingdom to consummate the work that he's inaugurated, we might be off. We might be distracted. Our priorities might be out of whack. Or we might have forgotten what we've been called to do. Bear witness by God's power. There's not a work we can do on our own. That's why I ultimately cannot be cessationist in my view. Now, I'm not a charismatic in the sense that we're all running around rolling on the floor doing crazy stuff. But I cannot, I cannot dismiss the role and function of the Holy Spirit in the making known of Christ and his kingdom. Jesus didn't send them to go until they had been baptized, until they had been indwelt and just covered up and empowered by the coming Holy Spirit. God's always commissioned his people all the way through. Every covenant that we studied back when we were in the covenant section, God commissioned his people to do things that led them to be absolutely dependent upon him. Adam and Eve, go be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Oh, wow, that's a big deal. Right? Hey, we can participate in that part of the, like, we enjoy that part of it. Let's, let's have some babies. It's fun stuff. But who actually puts life in a womb? Abraham, commissioned to be a blessing. How could he do that if God hadn't already made him a blessing? In fact, I think it was Ricky that brought it out in the Psalm 67, and we talked about it back when we were walking through Abraham's covenant, God's covenant with Abraham, that the, the, the language gives itself to, to mean that God is, is commanding him to be a blessing because I've blessed you. He's commissioning him to that work. He's making the ends possible by empowering the means. And he's doing the same thing here with his covenant people, the church. We've been given a role that can't, we, we can't possibly accomplish except the Holy Spirit come and make us able to do the work. As the church bears witness to Jesus by God's power, there, there will always be some who believe. But how quick are we to think, uh, they don't want to hear it. They'll never believe this. Do you? If you believe it, why wouldn't they? Are you better than they? Are you smarter? Did you figure something out that nobody else can figure out? None of us were looking for Jesus when he found us. Right? The only time we started looking for Jesus is when his spirit began to move on us and make us see the truth. It's already a response to his work. You cannot do this work without him empowering us to do it. 
Someone's always going to come to faith when we preach the gospel. When we preach Christ and him crucified, when we bear witness to his coming kingdom. And it was beautiful because in many ways, the, the early church, the, the early church thought that they had already accomplished this in, in large part. Tertullian, who, who lived about 100 to 200, uh, late 100s into the early 200s, wrote sometime around the year 200. He wrote this. We are but of yesterday. Meaning we're young, right? This movement, there's not a lot to it yet. It's just beginning. We are but of yesterday, and we have filled every place among you, cities, islands, fortresses, towns, marketplaces, the very camp, tribes, companies, palace, senate, form. We have left nothing to you but the temples of your gods. Because these ordinary, regular fishermen and tax collectors, these people from ordinary, everyday life, picked up the challenge, that they answered the call, that they lived the commission to bear witness to Christ and his kingdom. There's lots of people, lots of people who have sought to study this and, and seek to understand how it made, how, how it was such a big deal, how, how it moved so quickly in those first few hundred years. And lots of historians give credit to the fact that, the, that every member of the body, every person in the church saw themselves as part of the missionary endeavor. That they didn't just simply supply and send missionaries. They did supply and send missionaries. Paul's a good example of that. Philippians was supplying him and sending him. Acts 13, we see him and Barnabas commissioned to go out into the world. wasn't that that didn't happen, but as they're going out into the world and to the uttermost... The church still recognizes its role to be missionaries right where they are. And I, I, think that's, I think there's something to that. I think that that's the responsibility. I think that that's a big piece. God is sovereign over that means to his end. But I, do, I think that we're missing it if we dismiss that these are also people who are indwelt by, empowered by, and moving in step with the Holy Spirit. In fact, as you read the book of Acts, it's called in English Bibles the Acts of the Apostles, right? Like you open it up at the title, and if you're on page one of Acts, you'll see it, the Acts of the Apostles. It's hard to distinguish that. And there's many theologians who would point back and say, hey, yeah, that's the Acts of the Apostles, but it's really the work of the Holy Spirit. It's the Acts of the Apostles empowered by the supreme, divine, sovereign power of God's Holy Spirit. It's a both and. But it puts us exactly as every other covenant partner in history has ever been. Commissioned by God, dependent upon God. Under God's sovereignty, responsible before God for his work. Here we are. This is what he has called us to do. To bear witness by his power and to bear witness to the king. Jesus isn't called the king in this passage, right? As we read through it, we could say, oh, come on, where did you draw that from? How do you talk? But who do the people think he is? Is now the time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Are you going to finally take your throne? Are you going to finally do the work that you came to do? Are you going to complete this stuff? They thought he was a king. They saw him as a king and, and, and deserving of a kingdom. They heard his teaching about the kingdom. They understood it to a degree. He is the king. And they are to be his witnesses. 
bear witness to me. Be my witnesses. In the Greek, we get the word, uh, in the Greek, the word we get is martyr. So uh, immediately in our minds, in English thinking minds, we think, oh, these are people that got killed for their faith. Well, I'm no martyr. I'm not about to say Jesus' name and get my head chopped off. I don't, that, not necessarily in the Greek how that word gets used. It can mean that. But generally speaking, it speaks of someone who has knowledge that makes that knowledge known that gives witness, that explains that knowledge. And that's what a martyr was. Now, there were people who died for their faith. Stephen, you get to Acts 7, and he's going to die because he believes and follows Jesus and won't deny his name. Uh, most of the apostles are going to become martyrs in the sense that they die because of their faith. But it all, doesn't always have to be that. It means people with knowledge who know something who tell others. No, that's what Luke is calling them to. That's what Jesus is calling them to, a people who have knowledge. Now, what Luke doesn't tell us here is exactly what that means. He's giving us a recap. Remember, he's, he's kind of pulling back from what happened at the end of his last book, and he's moving forward. He's looking to transition into what's coming. But if we look at his parallel passage in Luke chapter 24, verses 44 through 48, we can see what Jesus intended when he said, be my witnesses. Because the question could be, well, he said, be his witnesses. I'm supposed to know how tall he is, what color his hair was, and how his... You know, whether he had acne when he was a kid or not. I, that, was, he a, was, was that who Jesus? No, that's not what he's saying. Luke 24, 44 through 48 says this. Then he said to them, these are my words. This is after his crucifixion, after his resurrection. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. It's language we've studied recently. It's not the first time he said that. Matthew, uh, as he's answering questions about the law and the prophets, right? It's all fulfilled in him. Then he opened up their minds to understand the scriptures. And here's where the breakdown comes. They're thinking of a kingdom because they don't have understanding yet. They haven't been enlightened. They haven't received the revelation from God. The, the spirit hasn't come on them and helped them see the truth. And so they're looking at the kingdom in ethnic terms, in geographical terms, in political power terms. They're thinking of the, of, of the nation, or, or the, yeah, they're thinking of the nation of Israel as a kingdom, and Jesus the king of this people, of this country, and not thinking of it in the terms that Jesus is talking about his kingdom. Then he opened their minds to understand the scripture, and he said to them, Thus it is written that Christ should suffer, and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are my witnesses. You are my martyrs. You are, you are the people who now have this knowledge, who are responsible to tell others about this knowledge. You are my witnesses. You are witnesses of these things. So Jesus isn't calling them to just tell the world about what kind of clothes he wore, or to, to talk about what his complexion looked like, or whether he had bags under his eyes, whether he was white or black, although we can argue about that kind of stuff. But he was calling them to be a witness to him and his identity. What do the scriptures teach about me? The prophet, the priest, and the king. The, the greater Moses, the greater David. The seed of the woman who God promised all the way back in Genesis 3, 15. At the very beginning when man first fell into sin and God says, there will be one who's going to crush your head, speaking to the serpent. The seed of the woman. 
In Acts 2, after Peter is confronted with her, the Spirit is poured out on them. 120 of them are gathered together, and they all begin to prophesy the glory of God. And people gather, and they're like, what's going on? What's happening? And Peter stands out from among them and says, they're not drunk like you're saying. This is the fulfillment of prophecy, and he preaches the first gospel message, drawing on the Old Testament scriptures, pointing to King David and saying, hey, he's the one who spoke of this Lord that's come. And then he comes to the end of that message and he says, This Jesus whom you crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ. Tell them who he is. He is God in flesh dwelling among us. He is the sinless Savior. He suffered as our servant even though he deserved our praise. But there was nothing about him that would draw our attention to him. We despised him, rejected him. And by his stripes, we are healed. You can't talk about his identity without beginning to think about and talk about his ministry. Why did he do this? Why did he, why did he submit himself, and humble himself as a servant? Why did he take on the likeness of man? To die... First, to live, a sacrifice, to, to live a sinless life, to die a sacrificial death, and to rise in victory. And why would he do that ministry? For the overarching mission that God had set out all the way back before the beginning of time, before the foundation of the world, Jesus knew he was coming to do that work so that in the end he could consummate his kingdom. That is his mission. His identity empowered and enabled his ministry. His ministry was to accomplish the purpose for which he was sent, and that's not just to die and save a few people. It's to redeem his people and to finally and fully consummate his kingdom. This is his work in the world, and we, as his people, get to bear witness to that as we sit here waiting, hoping for the day that he returns to finish what he started. So we, we, we bear witness by his power to the king and his kingdom. And we can't talk long about a king without talking about the kingdom. And this is what they were curious about. Is it now the time? Is, is, are you going to establish the, the, restore the kingdom to Israel? They got it wrong. They misunderstood. But the question's honest. It was driven from a place that, hey, we're, we're curious. We're trying to understand this. And, and, and this is in part what Jesus taught them. We saw that in, in Acts chapter 1, verse 3, where he's teaching them about the kingdom of God. This was central to his ministry. Mark 1, 15, the, the gospel of Mark opens, right? We don't even get far into the life and times and ministry of Jesus without Mark making sure we see Jesus' teaching. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The book of Matthew connects the gospel and the kingdom over and over and over. It's a gospel of the kingdom of God. It's a good news of God's kingdom. But the apostles seem to miss this. When the gospel begins to move beyond Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria, we find Philip beginning to teach about the kingdom. Acts chapter 8, verse 12. When they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and Women. It's not just about the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Oh, yeah, if, if you're going to try to summarize everything down into, hey, let me talk to you for about two minutes about who Jesus is. He's lived a sinless life. He's God in flesh. He lived a sinless life. He died a sacrificial death. He rose in victory, and any who call on his name will be saved. Boom, that's the gospel. But what about what happens at the end? The gospel is really good news because God is establishing a kingdom that's eternal, that will never fade, that will never spoil, and in Christ we get to live in it with him forever. That's really good news. So let's talk about it. Let's tell people about it. Let's talk about the the rule and authority of God that's beneficial and benevolent. This restorative, this this powerful and life-giving. It's a gospel of his coming kingdom. Revelation 21 loses all power if Jesus, or all, it just becomes sentimental about Jesus wiping away every tear and death having no place anymore if Jesus isn't establishing an eternal kingdom by power and with authority. We might as well just chuck it. But it's good news because Jesus is going to finish what he started. Acts 8, 12, and, and then we could, we could follow that thread all the way through, and we'll see this a little bit again next week, but we could follow that thread all the way through, but I'm going I'm to bring us to the end of Acts chapter 28, the very last two verses of the book of Acts, and we find Paul living in Rome, and it says this, the last two verses of the, of the book, he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him. Now, if that's where it ended, then we wouldn't know what, uh, man, he's just sitting around drinking, sipping some coffee, you know? Hanging out at Panera. That's not what, it's, it's not what he's doing. He lived there the two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Everything Paul experienced, everything he faced in his life, and, and yet here he is near the end, still doing the very thing he'd been commissioned to do from the very beginning. Make Jesus known. Preach his coming kingdom. Jesus and his kingdom are synonymous. You, you, you bear witness to him and you'll find yourself at some point talking about his kingdom. And so we need to understand what it is. The, the disciples missed it. The disciples misunderstood it. I think there's people today who misunderstand it. And that's why they're so given to the political powers and trying to, trying to exert authority from political positioning. His kingdom is not of this world. It is not bound by ethnicity or geographical boundaries. It's not bound by national lines. There's no socioeconomic divisions that bind it or stop it. It crosses them all. When he comes back, it will be a tribe, a people from every tribe, tongue, nation. We're to bear witness wherever these people are. We're we're to bear witness because his kingdom pushes past all those things. It's not bound up in that stuff. John Stott, I think, provides a, a good definition that's helpful. The kingdom of God is his rule. So so think authority. He's a king who exercises sovereign authority. The kingdom of God is his rule set up in the lives of his people by the Holy Spirit. It is spread by witness, not by soldiers, through a gospel of peace, not a declaration of war, not by, I'm sorry, and by the work of the Spirit, not by force of arms, political intrigue, or revolutionary violence. When we bear witness to Jesus, we can't talk about him, his identity, his ministry, and his mission without talking about his power and his authority. 
Because those first three don't mean anything if he is not the all-powerful God who has all authority in heavens and on earth. If he's not the all-powerful God who's in flesh dwelling among us with all authority in heavens and on earth, then how is he any different than any dictator who has ever lived? Or political power that has had position at some point in the life and times of people. He is God. We are his creation. His kingdom is made up of people. And and, and though all people are under his authority, not everyone is a member of his kingdom. Not everyone is of his people. Everyone will answer to his authority, but some, by the power of the Holy Spirit, come under his authority and willingly seek to obey it, submit to it, live in light of it. This is his kingdom. And it's the work of the Holy Spirit to bring us into that kingdom by the witness of the members of his kingdom. As we bear witness, God advances his kingdom across the lives of people, across the hearts of mankind. That is not our work. I, I recently, it's not recently, several years ago, I went to a conference and it was called Kingdom Advancement. You and I are not called to advance the kingdom. You and I are powerless to advance the kingdom. But we can bear witness to the king and the God who's advancing his kingdom. It's subtle. Maybe not so much subtle, but boy, it's easy, it's easy to get that twisted up. It's easy to think that now i got to make this happen. i got to argue people into the faith. you just got to bear witness to the king and his kingdom by the power of the Holy Spirit. i got to convince people to live the way they're supposed to live. you just got to bear witness to the king and his kingdom and the, by the power of the Holy Spirit. By our witness, the Spirit advances and expands the kingdom. We don't go to war with anyone to take people or gain power. God has all the power we need. And he's empowering us to do his work. We don't have to exercise a bunch of power. You know how much strength it takes to get angry and puff up your chest and bump up against people and act tough? Very little. But to exercise self-control when you're being accused of doing evil, when you know you're seeking to love and do good, to demonstrate meekness, even though the authority would seek to be, the, the, the authority of the day would be seeking to oppress and silence. To speak clearly and concisely with a humble, meek, gentle voice. Do you know how much strength, how much power that takes? So much that none of us, me nor you, are capable. We need the fruit of the Holy Spirit. We're going to actually talk about that in a few weeks. We don't go to war with anyone. We don't take people. We don't gain power. We don't force people to confess the name of Jesus at the end of a gun or a sword. We are not called to establish Christ's rule on earth. He's done that. That is finished. All we do is bear witness. That's it. Not so hard. Go make him known. We are called. We are commissioned to bear witness by his power to the king and his kingdom wherever people are.
Where do you interact with people? Where are you supposed to be a witness? Is there a place you're not with people? Maybe in the bathroom. Hopefully you get a little private time. I see all the kids, right? Everywhere people are. I've, I've made jokes. Uh, no, it's, it's a terrible joke. It's still a corny joke. But I've been blessed to preach the gospel on every continent except for Antarctica. And I just figure there's not enough people to go there. Because, and they all come home anyway, so I'll find them where they're at. But there's people there that need to hear. Now, I'm not looking to go to Antarctica. I'm not asking you to go to Antarctica. But I'm just trying to press the point. Wherever people are, Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, to the uttermost, there's not a people who don't and shouldn't be able to hear this because God's people have made it their highest priority to go and bear witness to the king and his kingdom. If there are people there were commissioned to go to them, not force Jesus on them, but bear witness to Jesus for them. It doesn't matter how close or far. It doesn't matter the cost. It doesn't matter if we got invited or not. Like some of us, I want to be careful because I understand relational dynamics and relational evangelism is a, more of a long road than an immediate, hey, I'm just going to tell you the gospel and you're just going to have to deal with it. Uh, I get that, but a lot of us are looking for that inroad. Like, oh, just give us an opportunity, God. He gave you an opportunity when he sent his son and he made you know him. You have the opportunity. You know Christ. You are witnesses of these things. You don't need the people you're speaking to to give you an invitation. Would you tell me about Jesus? Would you explain to me why you're so hopeful when everybody else is so angry? Just tell them. No one's looking for Jesus when Jesus finds them. Right? So bear witness wherever people are, in whatever season we find ourselves in, bear witness to him. He is the only hope. He is the only solution. And don't be deceived to think that, oh, well, we got to take care of this big political mess we're in. So that was the, that was the thing that we faced in Africa this time. Is every, every time there's a, we, something, we deal with something. something. There's a reason not to go. There's a reason to run and hide. Always something. We get there and we find out that there's these riots and protests going on because the, president, the, the hopeful presidential candidate has been accused of sexual misconduct and, and inciting violence uh, and calling people to, to riot and protest. And so he's being convicted. And because of his conviction, people rise up and are angry. I was struck by the, by the irony of it all. And maybe you don't see that I think you see it. Sounded so similar. And, and, and the people who are supporters of this guy who's been both tried and convicted now are angry because they believe it's a conspiracy by the, by the president in power now to keep this guy from being elected president next election. So they're protesting. They're burning stuff down. They're tearing it all up. So when we sat down and talked to people, yeah, 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 I, I, I get this Jesus stuff. I understand. But that's spiritual stuff. I need, I need a solution for this physical thing I'm facing. The only thing that's going to convince that person 
is Jesus giving, giving them, opening their eyes to the, to the truth of the scripture so that they understand there's no physical solution that isn't first met by this spiritual solution. Jesus, our king, has come and he is establishing an eternal kingdom and one day it will be consummated. And you are either in it and you will know his glory and blessing forever or you are out of it and you will know the weeping and gnashing of teeth and the burning fires of hell. Wherever people are, whatever situation they find themselves, whatever season they're in, they need to know about Jesus. But what about? I'm going to answer every one of your arguments in your mind. It doesn't matter if they die and go to hell. And the only way you can prevent that is to bear witness to Jesus and his kingdom and pray that the Holy Spirit moves on them in power and wakes them up. Bear witness in word and deed. St. Francis of Assisi is often blamed for the terrible quote, preach the gospel always, use words when necessary. That is wrong. If you use it, if it's on your car, if you've got a coffee cup that you just love to drink out of, throw it away. It's a lie. The gospel is a message that has to be preached. You can't preach a message without saying words. Now, don't let me mislead you. Don't misunderstand. If your actions aren't in step with your words, what, what do we call someone that says one thing and does another? Hypocrite. I'm not asking you to be that. Your life, your, the way you live, the way you utilize the resources that God has given you, your time, your money, your abilities, your energy, your influence, what, whatever thing that you have that God has given to you, everything about you and the way that you practice life should be in step with the words that you're preaching about Christ and his kingdom. So Jesus said, love one another as I have loved you. This is how people will know you're my disciples. We should be doing the things that Jesus has called us to do. But that's not an excuse or a substitute for bearing witness, for being a martyr, for being someone with knowledge who shares that knowledge. When we do what Jesus did, we bear witness to Jesus, right? Like that's, that's true. But don't ever assume or think that, that your efforts and actions will do what only your words can explicitly do. If you live the life that is loving others as Christ has loved you and you never say his name, you know who gets the credit for your life? You. Everyone who looks at you, what will they say about you? He is such a good person. Well, that's a lie. The only thing good in us is what God has placed in us. So we have to speak. And here's the problem. That's my opinions. You can take them or leave them. It's something I think that has to be said. We seem to want to talk about lots of stuff. But there's very little talking about how great Jesus is and how hopeful we are for his kingdom. What are you talking about when you're sitting over coffee? Just getting together with brothers and sisters in Christ. What, what, what is the topic of, our, of your conversation? What, what is it that the talking heads are going on about? The podcasters, the televangelists, the, the preachers of the day. 
the messages I seem to hear most are, and this again, my opinion, we want, to know that we, we want the world to know just how sinful they are more than we want them to know the forgiveness that Jesus has provided in his sinless life, sacrificial death, and victorious resurrection. We talk an awful lot about their sin. How many of us are actually sitting down across the table from a sinner and saying, please trust Jesus? Talk about their foolishness. Talk about, I can't believe these people live this way. The only reason you're not is because God opened your eyes to the truth of who Jesus is. He gave you this knowledge so that you could share this knowledge. It, it, it seems to me, this is my opinion. I can't prove this. It's anecdotal. It's just my experience as I listen, which I probably should do more of. But we want the right, it seems to me we want the right political leaders in place to make our lives better more than we want to bear witness to our eternal king and his coming kingdom, no matter what the cost. What if they take my, 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 my rights? Well, I've got to have a right to... to, to I've got to have the pursuit of happiness and joy. No, 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 no. Most Christians have never known that. Our constitution is not what makes you free. Jesus does that. You don't need permission from anyone or an invitation from anyone to speak his name and bear witness of his glory. I'll lose my job. So, is that enough to not tell somebody about Jesus and give them an opportunity to live forever in heaven with him? Your job? How, uh, lo loving enemies? Loving neighbor? Lo Isn't that somewhere in there? It seems to me we want to withdraw from or escape the world more than go to it and bear witness to the only hope that's offered to it. How easy it, man, I feel this, I feel this so much. Oh gosh. Come, Lord Jesus, right? Like Calgon, take me away, but Jesus, take me out of this place. I'm so weary and tired of the difficulties and seeing the strife and the frustration and the hurt and the pain as if I'm more compassionate. And loving than the God who sent his son. Seems to me that we want to withdraw from or escape the world rather than go and tell them. Seems to me that we want the world to conform itself to our way of living so that we can feel more comfortable in it. Even though they don't know Jesus and haven't been empowered by the Holy Spirit to do anything about it. Just figure it out. Just do what we say. Let's write a few laws. Give something for people to obey. Let's outlaw sin. That'll fix it. That'll make us better. That'll give me a place to live that I can finally raise my family in. There's only one kingdom that's going to be good for your kids to live in. It's not going to be this one. It's going to be the one that God comes and establishes forever when he sends his son who's going to come back on the clouds and call his people to be with him. It seems to me that the church in America, by and large, has lost its way and would rather argue over tertiary doctrines, divide over social agendas, point fingers at one another over differing methodologies, judge one another for not measuring up to our own individual standards because you're too far left or you're too far right or you're not right enough or you're not left enough rather than bear witness 
to Jesus by our words and our deeds. How different would our message be in this lost and dying world if we quit arguing with one another and started bearing witness to the king and his coming kingdom by the power of the Holy Spirit? I'm convinced that that life of mission and answering this call would unite his people in a way that agreement about doctrine, agreement about pursuit of social ideology, about political perspective, they never do. In part, if you want to know the transparent God's honest truth, in part, that's why we go to Senegal. Because it puts us on a mission that's beyond ourselves, that's bigger than us, that's more than we can ever do. And none of you, none of you need God to tap you on the shoulder and say, get up and go. Because he's commissioned you to go wherever people are, and he's put you in a church that's going. So next year, when we make the call, you should all be, oh, i got to figure out how to get there. Oh, I can't make it to Senegal. I, practical reasons, uh, whatever. I'm not trying to give you a law to live by. That's why we go to Montana. It's a little easier. Family, a little family friendlier. But even if you can't get up and be a part of that, that you don't need God to come and tap you on your shoulder for and say, hey, you're called to go, you're called to go. You have neighbors. You have coworkers. You have children playing in your house. You have, I assume, friends, people that you spend time with. Grocery stores that you shop in, restaurants that you eat in, places that you inhabit, and there are people there. Bear witness. Let me just ask you, in closing, a couple of questions. I want you to take these, think on them, even discuss them in your community groups. What authority, what kingdom, what power have you given yourself to as a witness? What do your words bear witness to? What are, the, what are the things you talk about? We talk about the things we're taken with. What has, has filled your conversation? Has it displaced your bearing witness to the king and his kingdom? What do your deeds bear witness to? Are they in step with your message? Are they in step with your words? The way that you use your time. Your money, your stuff, you know, not just the money in your bank account, but the stuff that you have, the physical blessings, the tangible blessings that God has given you. Your ability, what you're able to do, your energy. How does it bear witness along with your words to who Christ is, what Christ has come to do? God's mission for his church in this world is to bear witness by his power to the king and his kingdom, wherever people are. Let's pray.